welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Welcome to today's episode of First Incision. We have a special guest episode today with Dr. Carolyn Vasey, who is a colorectal surgeon from Ballarat in Victoria. She has kindly offered to come onto the program to answer some questions I had from the colorectal module, as well as to talk a little bit about her thesis on surgery and parenthood. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks so much, Carolyn, for coming onto the podcast. To start us off, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, my name's Carolyn Vasey. Um, I'm a colorectal surgeon. Um, I work in Ballarat and I've been a consultant here now for three years. I did my um, set training through multiple locations. Um, I started at the Royal Melbourne um, and then subsequently went to Darwin for 12 months. My husband's an ID physician, so he, um, he was keen to go up north and it was a really amazing opportunity um, from a surgical point of view as well. And I actually did my fellowship exam from Darwin. Everyone thinks that you have to be back at the city hubs to contact with other people uh, preparing for their exam and being study groups and things. But um, before Skype and Zoom were, were trendy pre-pandemic, um, my study buddy was Laurie Weber. Um, he's a HPB surgeon in Perth now. And Laurie and I met as interns at the PSA, which is the Provincial Surgeons of Australia meeting in Broome. Um, And we maintained a a friendship from that point onwards. And then actually we became study buddies from from Darwin and and Perth. Um, And we spent lots of time doing Zoom meetings after work and didn't have to travel for study groups. And so, yeah, it was really good. Actually, I was set four up there. And then I came back as a set five to the Western um, and did some thoracics um, and bits and pieces through the Western and then did a, a general fellowship year in Geelong, um, which I got onto the CWANZ program after that, went to Auckland for a year. And then in my final year of CWSANZ, I actually worked part-time. So I split one year over two. Um, and for the first year, I did a job share with a good friend, Greg O'Grady, who's a colorectal surgeon in Auckland. And we did crazy stuff as well together, whereby we we job shared two weeks on, two weeks off. And he would actually come from Auckland to Brisbane to job share. So um, he had he had lots of commitments, both his his wife's career and his his lab work in in Auckland. That meant that that was um, what he wanted to do to get his final year of um, fellowship done. And the second year of that part-time position I had did at the Gold Coast and I had six months of maternity leave when I had my first child. So that's me in a nutshell. Um, I always wanted to work regionally and I wanted to do a subspecialty, well, offer a subspecialty skill set in a regional centre. And, yeah, you can't always plan exactly the journey that you take through surgery. And I think even if you do plan a journey, it doesn't always work out as you planned. Um, So you sort of have to... Um, allow the journey to unfold and take the opportunities that are offered to you. Um, and, and that's led us to Ballarat where we're very happy. So I wanted to ask you as your next question, what you wish you'd known earlier while you're preparing for your fellowship exam. And if you have any tips or tricks for those of us that are staring down the barrel of the exam. Um, well, my registrar, Jessie Cole, who's working with me at the moment, and I were talking about this the other day, and the one thing that we came up with was that when you get to just before the exam or maybe just after the exam, you realise what you didn't know as a set one, two, three, four, and you think, gee, how do I function as a registrar without knowing all of this stuff? And so I think what you do in retrospect is that it's a a gradual acquisition of knowledge and experience and it's kind of the apprenticeship model that we all um, know and love because that's kind of been effective in terms of teaching you know, the skills that we need to operate, but as well as that, the knowledge that we need to pass an exam. So I would say the only thing I would do in retrospect is probably start earlier and slower and have a slower build rather than trying to do it all in 12 months where you're sort of expected by your clinical team to be running the show because you're probably the senior registrar. Um, You've got more time pressure on you. um, 
and you know life condenses down to work and study and it becomes a bit of a pressure cooker environment if you don't have a balance in your life um, and there's only 24 hours in a day so I think the only thing I would do in retrospect is is see it like a slow burn rather than a a sprint a marathon rather than a sprint and um, just start doing little bits of reading around the jobs that you're doing in the earlier years um, is my main advice in retrospect but yeah the other thing I would say is that the the clinical exam the the fellowship exam is actually I, I think even though it's a pressure cooker environment it's actually a reasonably enjoyable process um, a lot of surgeons enjoy talking and explaining and um, it's an it's a unique exam format because obviously there's a written component, but most of it, the three day bit, is is clinical decision making. It's it's making decisions on the run. It's responding to patients in front of you who are real, um, and it's just showing people what you do on the job. And there's not that many professions that have um, an opportunity to to do that. Um, so it's it's kind of a cool exam in some ways, even though people might shudder when I say that. <laughs> I definitely feel like this is the first exam I've studied for. I'm not just rote learning stuff. I have to learn just to pass the exam. I feel like it's things I'm going to use and really relevant to day-to-day what I'm doing. So I'm, I am actually enjoying the process. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. And that's exactly what it should be because that's what it's checking that we can all do. So getting into some colorectal topics. I have a few questions for you around, mostly around colon cancer and around stomas. Um, So the first question, I didn't actually know this, but you're probably the perfect person to ask this question of based on the article you sent through to me. Um, So my question is that I get pretty confused around talking about what to do about splenic flexure tumors and the operation that would be indicated. So I was hoping you could talk to me about um, your approach to splenic flexure cancer. Well, like everything in your exam preparation, Amanda, um, if you're confused, most people are. And the reason I did the research that I did is because of the confusion around how to manage splenic flexure cancers. And I think that confusion arose uh, because, as you know, the blood supply to the splenic flexure is considered a watershed area in that it gets some blood supply from ascending branches from the inferior mesenteric artery, so the IMA and the left colic branch that branches off that IMA, and obviously the middle colic um, branch is coming around and they sort of join forces to supply that area. Um, and in terms of lymphatic drainage, um, really it reflects the arterial and venous supply. So it is thought to be, or always traditionally was thought to be, um, possibly both and therefore you wouldn't want to leave unrecepted lymph nodes in if you're only going to focus on one pedicle or the other and so people um, wouldn't know which pedicle to resect um, and they would resect both or in some situations if you are resecting the middle colic um, and the ascending branch of you know the left colic coming off the IMA you also need to then mobilize the hepatic flexure to get enough length to join a decent bit of colon onto another decent bit of colon and that sometimes meant that you would then take out the right colon um, and join the the small bowel or the terminal ileum to the sigmoid colon so you would essentially do a subtotal colectomy in order to ensure that you didn't leave unresected malignant nodes along um, a lymphatic pathway that you left in because you focus on one pedicle and not the other that all of that thinking arose from the fact that this is considered a watershed area in terms of vascular supply and subsequent lymphatic drainage um, so as part of my CWSNZ training, um, I had to do a research project and I was very grateful to the opportunity provided to me by North Shore Hospital in Auckland, um, Mike Hugh Moyer, who is a, a bit of a colorectal legend um, across the ditch, um, sat down with me and came up with the concept of, of doing this study and it was great fun to do actually. We basically asked 30 patients that were having uh, rectal cancer surgery whether we could inject some technetium 99 um, subserosally into their splenic flexure. So they had a normal splenic flexure, they had a, a rectal cancer unrelated to their splenic flexure. We would mobilise the splenic flexure obviously to do an 
anterior section um, and we would actually map the technetium a bit like you do in a sentinel node for breast cancer and check which way the dominant drainage was. In 96% of patients out of that 30, the significant drainage um, and almost the only drainage was to the uh, left colic artery. So that was the artery that arose off the IMA on the, on the left, in the left colon. Um, so that wasn't even 50-50. It wasn't even near that. It was fairly, fairly consistently the left colic. Um, and that was in anatomically normal splenic flexures. Um, whether or not cancer changes that is yet to be determined. But my feeling is that it is on the basis of that, of that clinical trial is that it's quite clearly going to be, uh, if you're going to resect a, a vascular pedicle, you need to be resecting the left colic. So my approach to a splenic flexure cancer is just to take out the splenic flexure and do a segmental resection like we do for cancers in the right side, like we do for cancers in the sigmoid colon. Um, we only take out the bit of bowel that we think is involved and the lymph lymphatics that we think are involved and then we join two healthy bits of colon back together. The problem with taking out the splenic flexure as a segmental resection alone is that it, it's a little technically challenging. Obviously, the splenic flexure can be difficult. It's close to the spleen. You've got to be careful of, you know, getting to the lesser sac and the tail of the pancreas. It's a, it's a difficult area. But we operate on the splenic flexure all the time for an anterior resection. So I mobilise the splenic flexure as I would normally uh, laparoscopically and then I make a little um, up and down muscle splitting incision in the rectus um, in the left upper quadrant or wherever I think the two ends are going to come together and then I do a hand-sewn anastomosis and the reason that I do a hand-sewn anastomosis is because you can't get a staple gun a bum gun into the proximal sigmoid colon maybe one day we'll have them on the end of colonoscope so that we can but at the moment obviously you know what a rigid bum gun looks like you can get it to the top of the rectum comfortably but beyond that it gets a bit of a stretch so um, the alexis wound retractors i think revolutionize lap lap approaches in that you can make little incisions and retract the abdominal wall and then you can do a hand-sewn colo colo anastomosis and the reason I do that is it preserves the normal right colon. So in the days of subtotal colectomy where the teaching was, well, you don't know if it's draining to the, the IMA, you don't know if it's draining to the middle colic, so take out both, means that you then have to sacrifice a normal ileocolic pedicle and normal cecum, ascending colon, hepatic flexure, transverse colon, and join the ileum onto the sigmoid colon. Um, and that's fine, but it's a much bigger operation in terms of dissection, um, and in terms of function, function, in particular for older patients, they're more likely to get diarrhoea, they're more likely to get post-op ileus. And I think it's not really in the patient's best interest to sacrifice normal right colon and normal transverse colon if you've got an isolated split flexure cancer. So my exam answer that I think would pass these days is that I would do an isolated splenic flexure resection. And then I would cite the study that shows that the most of the lymphatic drainage is to the um, is to the left colic. Um, and I would, the only thing I would say in terms of caveat is two things. One is that if the preoperative imaging suggested that there was lymphadenopathy in the mesentery in another location, so if there was lymph nodes along the middle colic, I might consider a subtotal colectomy uh, to get there. Um, or if it was an obstructed cancer and the cecum was threatened because it was a late presentation, you know, with a malignant large bowel obstruction, if you go in, um, either laparoscopically or open and the cecum has split or it's looking like it's, you know, very, you know, got venous en engorgement, it doesn't look healthy, then you may have to sacrifice a lot more colon in that situation. But again, the, the aim of the game is to get the cancer out, get the nodal harvest and join two bits of healthy bowel together. So basic plumbing. <laughs> and would you take the um, left colic at its origin? Is that from the IMA? Yes, I would take it at its origin, and that is easier to do in thin people because you can see laparoscopically in the mesentery, you just tent it up, and wherever you pull up the mesentery um, where you think the vessels are in lap cases, they will, it will usually tent down in that the mesentery sort of drapes off the point of tension, which is the vessel. The problem is in, in um, obese patients, you can't often see the vascular pedicles as well. Um, and in that situation, again, it's... Based a little bit on experience, if you know where your IMA is, you can kind of 
figure out, again, by tinting it up like what you do for an anterior section and see where the left colic comes off or put a hole in the mesentery with your energy device, um, Thunderbeat or Ligashore or whatever you use, and, and find out where the vessel is. You can just punch through the mesentery once you've mobilised the colon, obviously, and you get sort of fresh air on either side of the vessel, like what you normally do to whittle anything down before you divide it, and then you can divide that at its origin or very close to its origin as it comes off the IMA. So, yes, I would take it at the origin of the IMA. And often you've got quite a lot of redundant sigmoid, um, so bringing the transverse colon to the sigmoid is not a problem. It just, instead of the flexure sitting right up above the, underneath the spleen, it just sort of has a, a less sharp corner on its way down. Mm. And what do you do with the mesenteric window in the small bowel? I just put the small bowel where it's anatomically meant to be. Um, so I wouldn't leave small bowel on either side of my joint. I would, I'd keep it all on the, on the midline, so to speak. And then, um, I put the colon, colo, colo, joint so the the, the hand sewn joint in the sort of paracolic gutter where where it would sit normally and then put the small bowel over the top of it and cover it with omentum and close the wound and touch wood I haven't had any you know internal herniation or anything like that with that approach but that's also what I do with a right hemicolectomy I, I don't close the mesenteric defect you know when I do a lap right hemicolectomy um, and again it's 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 unusual for the small bowel to herniate through a mesenteric defect and it's pretty big anyway, so it's unlikely. Exactly. It probably goes through and back without us even knowing about it. Yeah. Does that make it clear? Yeah, it does. That makes sense. And like you yeah. say, those two caveats yeah. of if there's any um, disease elsewhere or if there's a um, threatened cecum, then you would change your approach. Yeah. And the other thing I would say is that if there is extensive disease elsewhere, so if there's, you know, in unresectable liver metastases, peritoneal disease, all that sort of stuff, you just want to get out the obstructing or the the problem bit because you're not trying to do a curative intent operation. So if there was disease elsewhere and it was very obvious at diagnosis that this is a palliative resection, I wouldn't extend the resection margins on the basis of a non-curative approach. It's really just to get the primary out. Um, so that would be the only caveat to other, other disease in terms of chasing nodes along middle colics and bits and pieces that wouldn't be appropriate if, if they had extensive disease. With the cecum um, and with splits in the cecum things, I heard different approaches about some people saying, you know, if it's obviously ischemic, take it out, but that if it's just a little bit split and you're going to fix the problem anyway, you could over-sew and you don't necessarily have to remove it. Do you have like an approach for when you would definitely remove the cecum and sort of what you might accept and over-sew? So with our colorectal screening program in Australia and now in New Zealand as well, we usually see cancers that are earlier than late obstructions, but obviously occasionally we see a late, a late obstructing cancer. Um, and in terms of assessing the viability of the cecum, it's really, well, I think it's, it's obvious when you look at it whether you can salvage it. The key thing you need to be able to do is decompress it. So if you're going to do a segmental resection of the splenic flexure and preserve the cecum and you've had a bowel obstruction, you need to be able to evacuate the stool out of the proximal um, colon above the tumour so that you're dealing with a decompressed bowel. Um, so if you can do that safely um, by, you know, putting packs away and putting a sump sucker in or um, occasionally for a malignant large bowel obstruction, you need to do an on-table colonic lavage. So basically like um, washing out all the, the obstructed feces, it means that, that your joint's got a chance to um, heal um, and obviously the cecum, the pressure gets taken off the cecum. So in terms of dealing with cirrhosal tears in a threatened cecum, it, I think it's usually an obvious decision as to whether you can save it or not. If it's purple and it's split and you've got litres of poo, then obviously it's pretty high stakes to leave it in and, and doing cirrhosal repairs in that situation is probably high risk. Um, but if it hasn't had that, you know, degree of threatened perforation which nine times out of ten it hasn't because people have pain and present with symptoms before then and we get sort of very good quality cts and people get taken to theater in a timely fashion most of the time so i think that sort of threatened cecum is less of a problem in modern sort of colorectal surgery than what perhaps was 20 30 40 years ago where you know people were having plain films and you know, subspecialty kind of CTs and services weren't necessarily available and we didn't have a screening program. So late presentations were more common. Obviously, you still need to be able to deal with it and make a decision, but it's not a common problem. And if they're going to present that sort of scenario to us in the exam, it's going to be pretty obvious. That's right. They'll usually give you a picture of a, a black cecum, 
you know, <laughs> yeah, leave that in at your own peril. <laughs> okay, should we move on to the next question? Yep. So this one's about uh, rectal cancer and um, short course versus long course radiotherapy. Do we ever give short course radiotherapy to rectal cancers in Australia? The short answer to that is no, we don't, except in special circumstances. And the special circumstances, again, are rare. So most patients in Australia that get rectal cancer, get radiotherapy for rectal cancer, get long course, which is six weeks. Um, and a short course is generally about a week. And the reason that we offer a short course is for special patient circumstances where they might have competing interests, you know, for needing to get systemic treatment or the guy that I'm dealing with at the moment, for example, lives a long way from um, Ballarat and has a huge reluctance to have any sort of uh, radiotherapy. And so it's been by negotiation that he will have a short course because of travel problems, because of his lack of willingness to have any sort of radiating treatment. Um, and so he's going to get a, a short course just to get him some radiotherapy before we take out his cancer. But um, 99 times out of 100 people will get long course in Australia. Europeans are more comfortable with short course. Um, in terms of operating, you need to operate within about sort of 10 days, two weeks after short course. Whereas um, with long course, we usually operate about eight to 10 weeks after cessation, sometimes even 12 weeks after completion of radiotherapy. And so um, you get less edema in the tissues, the planes are nicer to dissect, patients had a chance to recover. Your join is less uh, sort of threatened by the ongoing and evolving consequences of radiotherapy to the pelvis. So radiotherapy takes you know, up to three months to have its full effect, which is why we've pushed the post-op window out to almost three months. So if you're operating and joining bits of bowel together that have recently just had a massive whack of radiotherapy, even if it is delivered over short sort of fractions like in a in a short course setting, they, it still is fully affected by the radiotherapy when you're joining it. So in terms of the operative side of things, it's much better operate on long-course radiotherapy patients with a big window in terms of tissue quality and, and join um, risk of leak and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And I read that if, you, if it's a bigger tumour and you're worried about your circumferential resection margin, those are the patients you might wait longer, see if you can downstage. Yeah, yeah that's right. So there's also an emerging uh, concept in colorectal circles about watch and wait. Um, and that came out of Brazil. Um, and so that basically arose because uh, we found that people had complete responses to chemo radiotherapy um, and that they actually had resolved their entire disease. And that was determined based on MRI as well as luminal assessment with scopes. And so in that situation, they actually got enrolled under a trial scenario to just watch and wait them, wait for to see whether the cancer is completely you know, killed by the chemotherapy and the radiotherapy or whether it would then recur or, you know, whether they would have a resection. So that was the trial that looked at and watch and wait and that's where it came from where people just had amazing responses to, to chemoradiotherapy. And obviously some tumours are more radioresponsive than others and we often don't really know how responsive a tumour will be until we actually irradiate it and then assess it. Mm, yeah, and I was talking to someone the other day who said that the follow-up for Watch and Wait, though, was really intensive, like three monthly scans and examinations. Yeah, and it's also not without its own morbidity in terms of survivorship issues. The main problem that we have with rectal cancer is low anterior resection syndrome, or LARS, L-A-R-S, um, and that is a combination of urgency, frequency, and um you know, it can be quite debilitating to have fecal frequency, um, urgency and occasionally incontinence. And when you irradiate a rectum, it essentially becomes quite fibrotic. You also irradiate the sphincters. Um, and sometimes patients have very poor outcomes um, functionally after watch and wait. Sometimes they also have strictures that can be symptomatic for them. So it's not like leaving the rectum in after it's been irradiated means that they'll get great function and resecting it they'll get poor function it's far more gray zone in terms of survivorship issues um, and obviously they have to be able to partake in intensive surveillance um, and they also psychologically have to be okay with doing something that is really still in its infancy in terms of what we understand about long-term data and most people will want their rectum taken out just from my experience because Generally, what um, we don't have complete responses. We, it's not common to have a complete response and patients will want that um, for a curative intent process where we can actually look at the pathology under the microscope and make an informed comment on, on their response to treatment. 
There's also a new approach which we're starting to do in our MDTs is this total neoadjuvant scenario where you give upfront long-course chemotherapy, um, Folfox chemotherapy, which we would normally give adjuvantly, so post-operatively on the basis of lymphatic involvement. But I think probably getting an oncologist to talk about those trials would be better than a surgeon. But that's definitely something that we are starting to adopt in our MDTs as well. I thought for that that I would probably say that that could have a role in patients who present with metastatic disease, like potentially resectable liver mets and things like that. But are you? I, I'm wondering whether or not it's, I haven't done colorectal for a little while, but whether or not that's something that's being used in, you know, radiologically node positive, but non-metastatic disease. Um, that's where the ne- total neoadjuvant is starting to come into um, that space. But definitely in the exam situation, if you've got liver mets, the systemic disease is what you need to get on top of first. But often in rectal cancer, we've actually got competing priorities. So the guy I saw yesterday actually was a very young patient um, and he has, you know, multiple liver metastases. He's got a locally advanced primary and he's got a threatened CRM with nodes in his mesorectum. So he needs long course radiotherapy for his primary before I resect it. But ultimately what he needs first is to get control of his liver because if we Mm. take out his primary and that all goes smoothly, he still has liver disease that it's actually going to affect his life expectancy. So in that situation, again, there's no right or wrong. We just try and tailor an approach to the patient. He's going to get three months of Folfox and then get restaged and assess his responsiveness to chemotherapy. Uh, And then he will get um, what we call sandwich protocol, long course radiotherapy, where he gets then the six weeks of of long course radiotherapy uh, with 5-FU to deal with his primary um, because occasionally if you don't deal with the primary in these situations, they can actually progress and they can become unresectable or they can need more extensive surgery to resect them or they can get peritoneal disease, which obviously means in most situations that they then become palliative, especially in the setting of having liver metastases. So definitely I would say in the exam, we'll probably get a little, little bit too detailed now, but definitely I'd put it through the MDT and be aware of emerging um, treatment protocols, both from a surgical point of view in terms of watch and wait and from an oncological point of view in terms of total neoadjuvant. Fantastic. Thanks so much. I've definitely come across the concept of total neoadjuvant treatment as well as watch and wait. So it's great to hear your perspective on those. My next question has to do with restaging post-neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy and whether you routinely restage and what modality you use to do this. So um, I usually restage just before I operate on them with an MRI scan um, and I usually operate at about the 8 to 12 week mark. And the reason I do that is because I want to know exactly what the response has been in terms of just the anatomy of what I, I need to get out. Um, and we're also getting better at sphincter-preserving approaches, so the TATME approach, transanal TME, TME, total mesorectal excision. And obviously we need to compare it to the pre-op examination and a documentation of the tumour height and its points of fixation and orientation You know, within the sort of clock face is absolutely critical and normally that would be done by the operating surgeon particularly if it's a very low one and you're trying to preserve sphincters and obviously you need to compare the pre-op or the pre-treatment MRI and then the post-radiotherapy MRI to see what response it's had and normally we would resect if it was involving sphincters in the first instance and it was grossly involving sphincters at that stage you know a PR exam confirmed that it was involving sphincters we would normally still proceed with an APR but the other possibility in terms of being informed with a subsequent MRI scan is that people's tumours can progress on on MR and you don't want to get into, you know, a curative intent resection and realise, oh, hang on, this is involving the prostate now, I need a urologist, should we do a cystectomy, should we do an exenteration, Um, you know, and having conversations like that with a patient on the table is just not appropriate. So I always restage them with a pelvic MR and I do that not immediately after treatment because as we talked about, that radiation effect sort of evolves over a three-month period. So I want it immediately preoperatively, like the week or two prior to surgery at sort of the eight to 10 week mark is when I would like an MR. It allows you to, the tissue edema to settle, the radio effect to sort of be evolved um, and for me to assess the anatomical detail of, of where I need to be aware of. So where was that lymph node in the CRM? Where am I going to be really specifically focused on making sure I don't breach that plane? Um, all of those sorts of subtle, th- subtle things are important when you're trying to offer someone a, a curative intent resection. 
What are some things that we as registrars should be aware of when we're assessing or talking to surgeons about rectal cancers? Describing the position of a rectal cancer endoscopically is really important for referring it on to a subsequent colorectal surgeon. Um, and again, the clock face is helpful. You can use anterior, lateral, posterior, or a combination of those. But the best way to ascertain its location is to put some liquid in the bottom of the scope so the patient will be generally lying on their left side, left lateral position. And you can get very disorientated during colonoscopy as to which way is up and down. And the water will always sit at the at the bottom, um, you know, an air fluid level. So if you just put some stand on the foot pump and get some water in the lumen, it will settle at the six o'clock position and then it gives you a reference point to describe where the tumour is in terms of its its location within the lumen. Other thing I would say is that please don't tattoo rectal cancers. Um, only tattoo cancers where you think that the surgeon at laparoscopy won't be able to identify the lesion. Um, and in the rectum, we can usually identify the lesion based on the MR and the rectal examination. Um, and operating on tattooed mesorectum is, is very difficult laparoscopically because of the discoloration of the tissues that happens. And obviously in the low rectum, it doesn't even have any mesentery. So it just goes everywhere, the ink. So you just need to tattoo um, cancers that are in the transverse colon, uh, where you don't know where exactly it is in the transverse colon, in the sigmoid colon, um, and then in the right colon, often you don't need to because you can identify your landmarks like your cecum, your ileus cecal valve, your appendix orifice. If you can see all of them and you can see the tumour within the same view endoscopically, you know that it has to be within the right colon. And we have a standard approach to the right colon in terms of a, a lap resection. So the points that need to be tattooed are where you don't know where you are. So that typically is in sigmoid and in transverse, not in rectum. And where do you tattoo? Is it proximal or distal? Do you have a guideline for that? So my standard approach is uh, approximately two centimetres distal to the tumour, so not proximal, because what I want to know is where is my distal margin to get out. The other thing I would do is in three quadrants. And I know that sounds funny because quadrant is four, <laughs> uh, but you don't need to do four dots. You just need to do three dots. And the reason that you do that is because if you only did one, you might actually get it only in the mesentery. And sometimes if you've got a bulky mesentery and it's just a small blurb of tattoo, you can't see it because it's covered in fat. So if you do it in three of your four quadrants or like a triangle, then you'll have almost certainly see it at, at, on one location through the serosal kind of view or the laparoscopic view. Because remember, the reason that you are tattooing the lesion is because of laparoscopic surgery. So again, if you're looking at a huge tumour that you can't traverse, it's almost certainly going to be a T3 lesion. And almost certainly we can see T3 lesions laparoscopically because you'll see You'll feel a mass with your lap instruments. You'll see telangiectasia and tumour growth, um, and you can usually identify most tumours. The tumours that we find really hard to identify laparoscopically are the resected malignant polyp, where there's nothing left in the lumen of the colon to feel or see, um, and we're really just doing a resection to get the lymph nodes out to make sure it hadn't spread to the lymph nodes, or in the really early T1, T2 lesions, which again are so early that we don't have any vision of them laparoscopically. And that's where we're guided almost exclusively by the endoscopic report and the tattoo. And the other thing I do for scopes reports where possible is take lots of photos because then a photo tells a thousand words. If someone photographs for me the tattoo location in its and its relationship to the tumour, I don't even have to read the scope report. I just look at the picture and I know, okay, that's two centimetres distal and they've done it in three locations, which is great. Um, whereas if you don't have any images on your scope report, then I have to read in detail the words that you use to describe what you've done. That's my approach to it. And I think it's probably pretty standard that it should be three locations, two centimetres distally. Taking a break from colon and rectal cancer for a moment, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about stomas. The first question I have is about the use of prophylactic mesh placement for the prevention of parastomal hernias. I've come across this a couple of times in the literature, but I haven't seen it done in practice. So I just wanted to know whether or not this is something that is used and in what situations you might consider it, um, as well as I guess whether or not we would mention it in the exam. So I presume you're talking about abdominoperineal resections or permanent colostomies because if you're creating an ileostomy, it's generally temporary. A loop ileostomy is temporary. So it's it's not common that we would 
do an APR. Um, again, the evolution of technology um, has meant that I think the APR rate has probably decreased as we can get lower and lower in the pelvis and get a primary anastomosis performed. Having said that, we do need to do APRs occasionally and we do need to create permanent colostomies um, for lots of reasons, not even not only uh, cancer. So my take on it is that there are three schools of thought. One is that you make your end colostomy as you normally would and see what happens. And you can make an assessment on the patient's risk factors based on their body habitus, diabetes, smoking and coughing, tissue quality, likelihood of hernia, age of patient, etc. cetera. Um, and in the high-risk patients, some people would consider prophylactic mesh. And then the question is whether you use a biological mesh or whether you use um, a, a non-biological synthetic mesh. Um, and the concerns people have around using synthetic mesh adjacent to the colon is that your the lumen or the orifice that you cut in the mesh has to fit very perfectly to the bowel. And sometimes when we're making colostomies, the bowel can sometimes be obstructed or distended. So in the setting of a Hartman's, obviously it's a generally a temporary procedure. Some people end up with permanent colostomies after Hartman's for lots of different reasons. Um, and they're generally really unwell patients who have malignant or diverticular bowel, caused bowel, bowel obstructions. So your colon in that situation is going to become smaller quick, more quickly. So you can't use any sort of prophylactic mesh in the acute setting in that situation because the discrepancy between the size of the bowel when you make the stoma and its actual size is makes the whole thing redundant so it's only an elective permanent colostomies uh, and then it would be on a case-by-case basis in terms of risk and i would tend towards a non a non-synthetic because of the concern about eroding into the colon and it being a very difficult to remove um, synthetic mesh. There's two other things I would say about it is that there are techniques that allow you to tunnel the colon through. So you make your, your fascial incision in the posterior sheath different to where your anterior sheath is and then use the rectus and the abdominal wall, the native tissue, to mean that the orifice in the posterior sheath and the orifice in the anterior sheath are off-centred. So it's less likely that you would develop a hernia. That technically is quite challenging if you're dealing with a big bulky colon with fatty appendix epiploica and a fatty mesentery because you have to make a big enough defect to get say five or 10 centimetres of colon through the rectus sheath and then back up and out. And it sort of does a dog leg in the abdominal wall. It also means that it's more likely to obstruct. And on the times that I've done that, it's been a technical challenge. So I don't do that. The other thing I would say is that we're getting much better at repairing parastomal hernias laparoscopically. And I would do a lap sugar baker approach um, using a Unfortunately, it's taken off the market, but it used to be a, a covered mesh um, that was a synthetic mesh that had a non-stick surface to stop it at attaching itself to intraperitoneal structures like small bowel. And then it also had a non-stick bit, like a tunnel um, where you could put the colon and then you would tack it up around that and sort of act like almost like a dinner plate to stop small bowel coming through that hernia. But again, I would generally reserve that for people that are having parastomal, obstructed parastomal hernias and difficulty with appliances and things like that. So in answer to your question, it's obviously an area of, um, of controversy and, and debate, but I would say most colorectal surgeons just perform an end colostomy, leave it at that and deal with any subsequent consequences if and when they become a problem because they don't always become a problem. And you only have to repair it, as you say, if they're getting obstructive symptoms or can't secure their appliance properly and are getting lots of leakage. Yeah. yeah. And the key thing I think to all of this is weight loss, um, because if you can get your patients to lose weight, they take the tension off the abdominal wall. And generally speaking, parastomal hernias is a disease of obesity. So last question. Sorry, I feel like I've just been grilling you for the last half an hour. <laughs> Hi. How about going? <laughs> Probably a little bit verbose for the exam. The one thing, can I tell you, can I say one thing? In the exam, you should have five sentences, five succinct sentences to say what you want to say and, and then leave it at that and have all the detail available if examiners want you to discuss detail. But nine times out of ten, they're going to move you on once you say five good things. I bulldogged the other day and I was so shocked how quick it all just went. Just, yeah. you know, Bam, 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 next question. They don't let you carry on with all this detail. If you say something sensible at the start, that's all they want to hear and then they move you on because they want to know a breadth of information. They don't want to know all the ins and outs of subspecialty, you know, rectal cancer 
approaches. Um, so last question, um, I thought I should ask something semi-operative. Um, so I thought I would ask you, what are your tips and tricks for the difficult colostomy? Um, so I actually think, can I change the question? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> the thing I find difficult is not colostomies because in the setting of a colostomy, you can just make a bigger facial defect and bring the, the, the colon through. The, the most difficult stoma is actually an, a loop ileostomy and Typically, these are difficult for two reasons. One is the size of the abdominal wall. So, again, obesity being the number one problem there. Um, the second thing is the amount of length of on the mesentery um, to get the bowel up to the, to the skin. And then the other thing is that if you're operating in the situation where you're trying to repair an asthmatic leak, the small bowel is generally very edematous and, you know, has been exposed to you know, fibrin, pus or enteric content for a while and it becomes very distended um, and friable. So in order to overcome some of their, them, the tips and tricks are that obviously you need to make a, as small as facial defect as you can to get the bowel through safely. But generally ileostomies are reversible uh, or, or plan to be reversed. So whatever facial defect you make, you can repair when you reverse a stoma. So be generous as generous as you need to to safely get a bit of bowel through. The second thing is you need to assess the maximal length of ileum, and that's not always a terminal ileum. Occasionally you need to come back a bit further just to get a bit more length on the mesentery to allow it to come through the abdominal wall, particularly in the setting of obesity. And in that situation, you would sometimes put what's called a rod behind the ileostomy. So that's basically, I usually just use the end of the drain tube, so cut off, a say, a 5 or 10 centimetres length of, of the drain tube and put that through the mesentery just below the bowel just need to make a little hole with a, a diathermy or an artery and diathermy and then suture that to the skin and that acts as a physical barrier to the stoma dropping back into the abdomen and the third thing with the edematous bowel is that uh, you just have to be very careful with handling it um, and again make a, a sizable facial defect bring out what you can put a rod in um, occasionally you don't have enough length to pout it like what we normally would for an ileostomy and making an ileostomy flush with the skin doesn't make the stomach therapist happy or the patient's happy because of excoriation um, to the skin but sometimes that's all you can do if you're trying to get out of a difficult sort of abdomen and occasionally putting in a prophylactic Foley catheter can help with the very edematous bowel to stop a combination of both bowel edema and small facial defect creating a bit of a hold up and um, therefore a subsequent ileus at the at the stoma so occasionally putting a Foley catheter just lubricate a, a Foley catheter and thread it through the proximal limb of the stoma and to inflate the balloon uh, deep to the fascia so that um, it decompresses the the proximal limb of the ileostomy. So the, the key things for any stoma is obviously tension and blood supply and trying to reverse it if, if you can down the track so that those difficult problems are only temporary for the patient. I don't, know if that was, I don't know if that was five sentences. <laughs> I suppose the key thing also is that other people have probably told you this is having a structure. The three things I tried to outline were size of fascia defect, length of mesentery and bowel quality. So if you can talk about, you know, your exam answers in a, in a nice structure in sort of succinct terms um, that will get you through most scenarios without needing all of the detail that you fear you might need, like the 1% of knowledge of page 235 of lasts or whatever. It rarely comes up in the, in the um, face-to-face, you know, interface that the clinical exam is. And the other thing I tell my trainees is to anticipate what it would be like in real life. So, for example, if you're about to do a trauma laparotomy and they ask you how to do that, they might say, okay, tell me how you do a trauma laparotomy. You say, well, I would make a generous midline, um, you know, incision and I would then anticipate encountering, you know, clotted blood and I would be prepared for that by doing X, Y, Z. After I evacuate that, I would then anticipate, you know, and so say what you anticipate in real life. And if, if you put yourself in the situation, which is where clinical practice comes into comes into its own, is that you anticipate things all the time subconsciously and it's just a matter of verbalising what you actually do on a day-to-day basis. So for the next bit of this episode, I was hoping Carolyn could talk to us a little bit about her thesis and tell us why she chose this topic and what she thinks everybody else can learn from it. 
Yeah, sure. So um, the thesis I, I did was Parenthood and Surgery, Can We Navigate the Divide? Um, and I, I took that um, topic on mainly because being a young female surgeon um, and I now have two children, um, a lot of my trainees um, would come up and speak to me about how I managed to do the juggle and, and do it all. Um, and obviously a colorectal surgery is is not considered a lifestyle specialty uh, for all the reasons. Um, I love doing it, but, um, you know, pe- people would ask me, you know, how do you do it? Um, how do you do it all? Um, and the other thing that I, I got sick of seeing was, was fabulous uh, trainees um, that would work for me as an unaccredited registrar um, or, or more junior than that, an intern or, or resident, um, who I would I, I would pick out from the crowd as being a fabulous addition to the surgical community. And these people really loved surgery, but eventually they would come up to me and it would happen all too often and they would say, I've decided that I can't do it all, um, particularly in the um, era of postgraduate medical education where um, people were coming to surgical training, you know, in their late 20s, early 30s, or even later than that. And these weren't just women. They were often women, but not always. Some men would also realise that competing interests in life, um, particularly with the mature sort of aspect, um, mature approach, life meant that they couldn't see a way of, of doing surgical training and maintaining uh, responsibilities outside of work to relationships or family that they either wanted to have uh, in the future or had at the moment. And it would really disappoint me that I would do my best to try and encourage these people to do surgery, but ultimately they would end up either not applying or, or leaving um, because it was seen as an all or nothing specialty and there were no clear pathways for um, part-time training Um and even taking time off work to do other things like what you mentioned, Amanda, where you anticipated travelling um, in the first half of this year, not to be due to the pandemic. But um, when I was going through taking time off for any reason, be it personal or academic or otherwise, um, was not a thing. And it, it just meant um, people got to these breaking points in their life and they they didn't need to do that. And surgery was the profession I felt that was losing out. And a lot of these people weren't really documenting their aspirations to become a surgeon. The college couldn't capture the data because they didn't know that they even existed. They weren't people on the training program leaving. They were just people that wanted to do it that decided not to. So on the basis of that motivation, I undertook a a study that looked at uh, qualitative and quantitative work. So quantitative is numbers and, um, you know, raw data and qualitative is looking at um, focus groups and, um, you know, words as powerful narratives um, that capture data that numbers can't capture. Um, and so I, I set up a, a survey um, asking people about parenthood, flexible training, um, access for, of fertility treatments, um, you know, balancing other responsibilities in their life. Um, and then I followed that up with some focused groups at one of the ASCs to drill down um, into these issues. And I tried to ensure that the um, people in the focus groups were a very diverse group, not just uh, young women, um, but, you know, department directors um, that wanted to have part-time trainees working in their department but didn't really know how to do this or weren't aware of the issues. So we had those focus groups and the thesis that you are referring to ended up being about 100 pages um, of a very interesting data that looked at um, at the issues of, you know, barriers and, and solutions to, to try to make sure that surgery maintains, you know, a balanced and diverse workforce and that that aspirants aren't turned off by the seemingly all or nothing uh, rigidity of the system. I'd be very happy to uh, email a copy of the um, thesis to any of your listeners who might like to get one. Um, they can just email me at carolynvasey at hotmail.com, my name, um, and I'll send it through to them. But I am pleased to say um, it is going to be published and my current medical student is taking on uh, reducing this into publishable form because despite my best intentions, I can't do it all. <laughs> and um, doing clinical work and managing a four-year-old and a two-year-old and having an infectious disease husband during a pandemic has meant that this has always taken a back seat <laughs> in terms of getting it published. So 
watch this space, um, delegate where possible <laughs> and um, feel free to reach out if it's of interest to you because I'm happy to to give you um, a copy of the thesis. Like you say, the college is a little bit more flexible than it used to be and they actually gave me the six months off to do my first Ironman, which I managed to do just before everything shut down uh, on the 7th of March this year. Oh, lovely. Well, that's great. And did you, out of interest, tell the college that that was your primary reason for taking six months off? That was, yes. That's what I told them. Yeah, perfect. Well, that's good. And it's music to my ears that that the truth is that you wanted time to do something outside of work that wasn't surgery and that that is okay because we are humans and um, expecting us to be superhuman makes us into bad doctors. And so making sure that you have a balanced life and you know, being fully present at work. Um, obviously, it's a stressful environment, and and you know, we're not perfect. But looking after yourself, I think, is really important to have a long um, and and successful career. And it hasn't been well modelled um, across the board by our seniors. So it's up to our generation to change that. I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, my um, supervisor was really supportive, which I think got it over the line. And now that I've gotten time off for that, I suppose other people will be more likely to get time off for similar things or whatever's important to them absolutely and the precedent's there um so that's that's great and and well done for completing an Ironman I mean it's not like you were (laughs) poking about in the garden although that's not a any less nobler pursuit (laughs) so lucky I managed to sneak it in um the last question I have for you is about Um, You sent me a message about wanting to talk about male champions of change, which I thought was a really interesting concept. It's interesting to know what what you meant by that. Um, Well, one of the diagrams in my thesis shows basically a pyramid of the number of men versus women at different stages in your career. So retired fellows, active fellows, trainees, and then medical students. And it's basically an inverse pyramid in that, the number of women um, retired fellows is like 1% through to about 50 or 60% medical students. G- given that the problem is emerging where uh, we have a lot more females, trainees, I think are about 30% now in general surgery, about 50% of medical students are female. Um, the key stakeholders that hold positions of power like directors of surgery and your surgical training supervisors and so forth, come from a generation where it was uncommon to be a female and a surgeon. And so these positions are typically held by men. So if we want to um, encourage change, what we need is men who are in these positions of power that understand the perspective from people's experience that is different to their own. So often these uh, men in positions of power have had a huge opportunity given to them by by their stay-at-home partner, um, and Annabelle Crabb writes about this in The Wife Drought, um, where there's someone at home that that raises the kids, that does the shopping, that organises the house cleaner, that, you know, knows when the school tennis competition is on, and they're able to exclusively focus on their work, um, and, and that's a huge privilege. Um, and if these people in positions of power aren't male champions of change, it means that they are blinded to their... Uh, privilege um, and it means that they're less likely to um, help people who may not necessarily have that privilege but may not necessarily be any less able or capable of making contribution um, and so male champions of change talks about people men who are aware of the issues that are gender-based issues in the workforce and um, they champion change from their positions of power. So uh, in the college, the people that I worked with was in on the college council. Um, I was the Raxter rep on council for some years and there were some fantastic men in on council that um, were real advocates for um, e- equality and equity in the uh, workplace, workplace before it became head, front page headlines and the external scrutiny of the media forced the college to change. So... Um, male champions of change can be at any level though I would say and the other day in the surgical office I was talking to the uh, orthopedic registrar a male orthopedic registrar whom had a you know huge number of hangers on that were all male and I talked to him about making sure that he was aware of the barriers to women and particularly to 
junior women that were working on his on his uh, unit. And he hadn't also realised that he was a male that was in a position to champion change and to make sure that the culture in his department, even though he was just the registrar, was was welcoming to women. And um, I note that the AOA have appointed, I think it's a third or 30% women. And I think in Perth uh, or WA, there are three women and one male this this round. So the AOA have made um, KPIs around uh, gender-based appointments. And obviously, it's taken lots of um, men and women in positions uh, of power to influence that. But we all have a position of power at work, whether we are aware of it or not. And we all need to be aware of uh, making sure that everybody um, is given equal opportunity and that diversity is, you know, included and respected in the workplace. For the last part of this podcast, I had to ask Caroline to give me some hints about performing research as I'm currently developing a protocol for a randomized control trial. I've got some tidbits here, which are really, I thought, great pieces of advice. And hopefully if you're considering doing research in the future, you'll also find this useful. Do you have a good supervisor? Okay, as long as they have a clear vision and they're good at keeping timelines and communicating with you and providing timely feedback, you know, be that track change documents and all that sort of stuff. I think that's a key thing that you need in the supervisor. The second thing I'd say is talk to lots of people and get lots of people's advice and you'll pick up little one percenters along the way about doing things like, for example, I didn't know that there was a laparoscopic gamma probe. Um, I found out that from a breast surgeon and then I rang the company and asked whether they would sponsor the trial by donating the probe for the duration of the trial. So you have to be a bit creative about like if you get on a lead, just think about a big picture and shoot for the stars and you can always, they can always just say no. So definitely if you, if you come across something, um, go for it, um, even if it hasn't been done before or whatever. Um, the other thing I would say is it takes a lot longer to do research than what you think it does. So start now and get your protocol really crisp, get your definitions really crisp, get it get it ready for sort of distribution early get your ethics early um, because that also is a very slow process and you can't seem to speed it up despite trying everything. (laughs) When you're writing up your thesis, I would concurrently try and write up your publications. The problem I had was that I wrote this thesis and I was so sick of it, I could not bear to look at it again. And then to try and refine articles out of a huge document is another process altogether. So if you do it by, by publication, then you will avoid that problem. The other thing is, you know, all the simple things, answerable questions, clear aims, clear objectives, you know, good literature review early on. The current study that I've just completed is an umbilical hygiene project. So basically it's a control of an educational arm um, versus a non-educational arm standard practice. And the educational arm is teaching people that if they're having laparoscopic surgery, it will be mainly done through, well, there will be an incision through their umbilicus or near their umbilicus um, and just using standard pieces of equipment in your bathroom cupboard, could you please clean your umbilicus? And we did that in an elective and emergency situation. So if people came in with appendicitis, cholecystitis, they would be presented with cotton buds, soap, water, a face washer, or whatever would be in a normal bathroom cabinet. And then they would be asked to clean their tummy button. And then we would photograph them and clean them before and after and then independently score them to see whether or not the educational intervention improved umbilical hygiene. So um, the reason I started to tell you that is because we got this company that makes what we call a luminometer, which is like a a machine, a small handheld machine that assesses the amount of bacterial contamination on a surface. They actually donated for the duration of the trial, again, because I asked them and explained to them that it would be very helpful, you know, for their business as well as our trial. So they just donated it for three months while we recruited our 60 patients or whatever it was to see whether or not there was a difference in terms of bacterial count, like an objective difference. We didn't want to do wound infection because it was too long and it was we had to have too big a numbers to see a difference because even though the umbilicals are festy on lots of people, it doesn't actually translate to wound infection. It's more surgeon grossed outness slash common sense of cleaning your umbilicus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, some of the things I've pulled out of belly buttons. <laughs> I know. And, you know, when you start talking to the general public about this, they're grossed out. They're like, oh, my God. And surgeons all laugh about it because we know how common it is. <laughs> well, on that note, I think we might leave the episode here. 
Thank you so much, Caroline, for coming onto the podcast today. We've covered a huge amount, including colon cancer, rectal cancer, stomas, surgery and parenthood, male champions of change, and even managed to talk about research and manky umbilicuses. I also really appreciate the tips and tricks that you've thrown in there about how to approach talking in the oral viva exam. I'm sure everyone will get something out of this episode. So thanks once again. For our listeners, I'll put Carolyn's details in the show notes if you want to get in contact with her um, and get a copy of her thesis, Surgery and Parenthood, Can We Navigate the Divide? And I'll also put a link to the randomized control trial she did looking at the lymphatic drainage of the splenic flexure. Feel free to contact the podcast if you have any further questions and remember to rate, review and subscribe so other people can find this podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!